out of Oklahoma City. You're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. We are gathered here together to talk about the movies you don't ordinarily talk about in the course of Film Studies course, but we're doing a marathon. Every first of the year, as Oscar begins to uh, weigh heavily upon the minds and hearts of, of, of people all over the cinephile world, we begin to look at some of the high art films, and uh, so we do an anti-trash marathon every year. Uh, this is our second installment, and we're looking at Louis Boonwell's The Exterminating Angel. It is a documentary about the Book of Exodus and how all the firstborn die. Um, it's also a really great companion to the Denzel Washington film Fallen. Yes, yes. Uh, And then the sequel, The Book of Eli. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I kind of want to watch that movie right now. (laughs) What movie are you guys talking about? Let's let's go watch it. You need to watch it. Have you seen Fallen? Have you guys seen Fallen? I love Fallen. Oh, Fallen, yes. It's so good. Uh, Every time I talk about unreliable narrators in my um, education stuff, I I always open up with Fallen. It's it's a really underrated thriller. I always give it away. I always spoil it because the opening line is, let me tell you about the time I nearly died. Yeah. And then it's, who's the eye? Yeah. It's it's great. Yeah. Um, spoilers. The sorry. eye is the devil. Yes. You are the devil. And the devil is bad. Uh, people, oh, are the wow. de- people are the devil. And we'll get there. <laughs> I caught that reference. I caught that reference, Dustin. <laughs> That's old school. All right. Well, hey, guys. Uh, let's introduce the disembodied voices speaking to your brains about the exterminating angel. To my left, sir, who in the world are you? Hi. My name is Caleb Masters, and I refuse to butcher sheep. I'm, however, might go off myself in a closet. All right. Very good. Thank you very much. Next, oh, sir. Oh, 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 in the context, if I was locked in a room um, with a dinner party with Dustin. Hey, Arthur. Can you do me a favor and uh, call Suicide Prevention Hotline for Caleb? Thank you. We're, we're we, stuck in. The, we're eternally stuck in this podcast room, so I've got to prepare. We're recording a lot of material over the next two days, so there is some truth to that. But, but yes, it is. It is a dinner <laughs> party that never ends. Um, next, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and Dustin, I, I, I legitimately believe that the lower classes just feel less pain. Yeah, I mean, haven't you ever seen what happens when they um, when they butcher a cow? Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. <laughs> totally the same thing. That that is a line in this film that liter- elicited a holy shit, like a verbal reaction from me. Oh yeah, yeah. the it, thing about the train car squished like an accordion. Yeah, I, do you, you you felt bad about that, Dalton? What's your problem? Yeah, I did not care for that, uh, Caleb. <laughs> it's, it's it's very unpleasant. <laughs> oh, very. Uh, my name is Dustin Sells, and uh, Caleb, I have disliked you for far longer than that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and they ask me why I'm on the suicide prevention hotline. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're looking at Louis Boonwell's The Exterminating Angel from 1962. Uh, we're very, very excited to be talking about this film. But before we get any further, we need to warn you, dear listener, just so you know what we do when we do this show. This is not a review show. It is an analysis show. Therefore, there will be spoilerific spoiler ridges uh, throughout the course of our analysis. But we give you a brief reprieve. And I would argue that this is a film that is worth experiencing because it's very weird um, and watching this film is kind of an experience so I would go ahead and say if you haven't seen this you might want to duck out when we get into spoiler territory because it's I, I think this is really worth watching not knowing a whole lot going into it 
Absolutely. So how far can you listen safely? Well, this is how you do it. We're going to start off with our brief synopsis from the voice of the Dalton Theater, and then we're going to move right into um, our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be generally spoiler free. Once we get through with that, we will play a game which will uh, be in some ways related to this film and to other films. There might be mild spoilerages, usually of other stuff, not of the film in question. And finally, when we get down to business, when we do our analysis, that's when the spoilers happen. You have been warned. So, without any further ado, voice of the Dalton Theater, let's hear that synopsis. The guests at an upper-class dinner party find themselves unable to leave. That's it. So I've, I, I was going to do my Owen Wilson, but I can't do it now. You know, when Owen Wilson pitches, he pitches, pitches it. it. He pitches it in Midnight in, in Paris. Paris yeah. Which is a really funny scene. Yeah, so funny. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to plug that into Google Translate, but uh, I didn't think about it ahead of time. Oh, that I'm going to read it in Espanol. That had been excellent, but that's okay. Um, so there you go, dear listener. Now you know it's a dinner party. It will not end. We don't know why. We don't know how, but that is what's going on uh, with the film. Let's hear those quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Mr. Dalton Stewart, you go first. I really like this movie a lot. Um, I, it was it was funny. Um, my sweet Lady Becca was with me. Um, and uh, just could not get into it. I don't. She she was like, ah, I'm not. She went. She got up and did something else. I was I was a little bummed out. So, and I can see how. Here, I mean, here's the deal. It, it's an it's an old movie. Um, it was not made for a whole lot of money. So the restorations that exist don't even the Criterion restoration that's streaming doesn't look great. Um, the sound is a little wonky. And yeah, and it's a foreign language film. So I could see why some people are gonna might be resistant to this. But it is, and it's weird. It's actively it's real weird. It's an actively weird film. It's it's a it's a really slow paced film too. So if you're not like ready yeah. for that, you know, like a lot of old films <clears throat> that are a little more meticulously paced, like you just it's yeah. it's weird. It's, um, it's it is short though. I mean, it's only an hour and a half. Um, but I I, I want to say that I I've been wanting to see this movie for years. Um, and I'm I'm so glad we I finally got to it. I'm glad we're getting to talk about it on the show because I I enjoyed it a lot. Um, because it is weird. Um. And it's sexy uh, in a way that I didn't know movies yeah. from the early 60s were allowed to be. Like, there's a full-on, like, boob and butt grope, like, on camera. Like, this is 1962. They were allowed to do this? And then I was like, oh, it was made in Mexico. Um, but uh, I, I can picture this movie. And there's a suicide. And there's rich people shitting in a closet. By the way, there's rich people shitting in a closet in this movie. Which is hilarious to me. And it yes. took the second time somebody went in there and came out for me to realize why they were going in there. It's full of pots. It's full. Exactly. I was like, why, Chamber did, I, pots. why did that guy just go in that room full of vases? Oh, they're pooping in there. Um, yeah, it's it's great. It's it's a weird movie. Um, and again, I don't want to say too much else about it other than that I like it. I think, Dustin, now would be a good time for you to put on your scholar cap real quick and give the kids at home just a little bit of background on this because uh, Louis Benwell's got a, a pretty interesting career as a filmmaker. Um, the film was shot in Mexico. It takes place in uh, pre-fascist Spain, it seems like, because it takes place in uh, a Spain that still has them. Well, the, Spain does still have their monarchy, uh, but it definitely seems to be taking place in like a late 1800s Spain, if I had to guess. Uh, I think it's a little further up than that. I, Is I, it? I, okay. It, it's sort of like an Elseworlds kind of thing, but because yeah. there's a sense okay. in which it's very modern as though- That's a good point. It, hadn't happened but it had i mean the dress is so formal it doesn't quite feel 60s to me right. although i don't i don't know anything about spanish well, the people uh, on the street sort of look um like you might find in uh, mexico city or in barcelona mm. or someplace like that i'm sorry you mean at barcelona uh well i didn't actually because i was saying it in english but it's fun to say it that way though. it is fun to say it that way uh louis 
Boonwell is a uh, Spanish uh, filmmaker who uh, was hanging around with those cats called the Surrealists quite a lot in 1920s France, uh, in which he did a partnership with one of the uh, premier uh, uh, artist minds of the time, a guy called Salvador Dali. You know him from melting watches and clocks and whatnot. And painting. sliced cow eyeballs. And sliced cow eyeballs, which is what happens in their first film, their collaboration, Un Chien Andalou, which means an Andalusian dog. Um, and it is um, a non-narrative, surrealist uh, masterpiece. Uh, his follow-up film was a film called Lodge Door, which is a more feature-length. Uh, I, th- I believe the runtime for Un Chien Andalou is somewhere around 15 and a half, 16 minutes, something like that. Un Ch- uh, Lodge Door runs about an hour hour and ten and uh, I, I actually like Lodge Door a little better um, as a film it is also uh, just as excoriation of the uh, bourgeois class and using of uh, insects and strange uh, sexual uh, imagery and uh, what have you and whatnot um, these two films were partnered with Salvador Dali although Dali's partnership is uh, quite a bit less when it comes to Lodge Door he moved on into making a couple of documentaries Land Without Bread in Spain and uh, then quickly um, made his way into Mexico where he has a long Mexican period of making films that are more or less surrealist, more or less narrative. Uh, the more artsy uh, surrealist uh, films of this period are uh, Exterminating Angel, which we saw, Verdania from two years before, also a film called Simon of the Desert, which is one of my favorite uh, Boonwell films. And then he moves back to France and uh, really begins, it makes his masterpieces at the end of his career, uh, a movie called uh, Belle de Jour, uh, a movie called uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Yep. Um, and also that obscure object of desire are just great. And those are like his his three heavy hitters, yeah, right? You, and those are all. And it was funny because they're all wonderful. But yeah, I, I just I, I was reading on Fun Tidbit like these are all movies he made after he already promised he was going to retire, and then he kept making movies, and they happen to be the best movies of his career. Though I have to say I'm very partial to Los Olvidados um, that he makes in Mexico, which mm. is sort of his Dickensian street child uh, oh, film. Okay. It's got bits of surrealist sort of stuff in it, dreamlike imagery. Mm. Um, reminds you very much of uh, some scenes that you see in uh, a movie called. Uh, Zero to Conduit uh, mm-hmm. which has got uh, boys in a boarding school and they have like a dream section with slow motion and feathers after something of a pillow fight or something like that I forget exactly what goes on uh, for that which is picked up by Lindsay Anderson in his film If and so very influential as well and uh, Dickensian well and there is a basically every bottle episode of television ever is inspired by this movie I mean you have seen this movie before uh, I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit later Um uh, one reference in particular culture that I, I love that's a reference to this film. So I want to mention another is uh, an episode of Community I watched right before we came here, which is uh, Cooperative Calligraphy, I think, from season two, which is a bottle episode. Um, for those not in the know, and if you're listening to the show, I assume you are, but a bottle episode is an episode of television where all the characters are stuck in one location. And it's... W- Literally every sitcom that's gone on for more than three seasons. Well, every show, I mean, Breaking Bad even, which has is a not bottle a sitcom, episode. has a bottle Fly. episode. Fly yeah. to kind of compensate for the budget. Yeah, and I think it's one of the great bits of storytelling that this film has gone on to have an important impact culturally is bottle episodes. Um, is, is the idea that, hey, you can really learn a lot about characters by sticking them in one place and not letting them leave. Which isn't to say that this is a character-heavy movie, because it's not. I mean, these characters are 
not. They're not characters at all. I know all. everything about Blanca. What are you saying? <laughs> Do you, though? No, I know nothing about I mean, they're, exactly. they're, they're, they're caricatures. The right? only one like I could always identify was like without waiting for them to talk was the doctor. I'm like, oh, it's the doctor. Everybody else had to be Because like, he's older and has a mustache. Exactly. Everybody else had to be like, and they wait, all... is that that one guy or is that the man of the house? I can't remember who that is. The doctor's is. the one they all wanted to kill a couple of times. Yeah, the doctor's great. I will say this just to, uh, just to tag on this idea mm-hmm. of the bottle episode and uh, trying to uh, get people out of a location. Another thing that Boonwell takes up when he reverses the sort of plot of this is in the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. in which everyone keeps trying to sit down for dinner and they can't do it and they move from location to location trying to sit down and eat a meal. And so, so it's kind of a companion. I, I, I'm vaguely familiar with that one. Yeah. I've never seen it but so it is kind of a companion. To I would say film. so yeah. Uh, the one question I had for you Dustin before we kind of move off of this film history segment um, obviously these films all of them have a lot of clout um, in film writing and film criticism. They're all very well respected. Do you know if any of these films had any traction with American audiences in their day? No. Were Ma- Americans seeing these at all? I mean, Americans saw them, yeah. Hitchcock is a huge Boonwell fan. They yeah. are both uh, very... Uh, Tristiana, Veridania, and mm-hmm. uh, this film um, are three films that are very, very um, crucial for Hitchcock mm-hmm. and uh, just adored Boonwell mm-hmm. and Boonwell's work in this Mexican But period. But with like a, a, a 1962 Caleb Masters who like... Uh, just got done drinking his desk bottle, like, and decided to leave the office early and go to the movies. Would he have been able to see this if he was living in like a Chicago or a Los Angeles it, or New York? Um, yeah, he would. Did, did these films get American releases? They did get American releases. Okay. And uh, fun fact: Roger Ebert wrote his uh, dissertation on this film. That I did yeah. know. Yeah. Roger Ebert loved this, this movie. Is, yeah, this a was lot. like one of the life-changing films for him. Yeah. Yeah. So, Caleb, uh, what, what were your thoughts on this? Did you get into it? Yeah, no, I got into it. I really liked it. Had you it. seen it before? I had never seen okay, it before, it first, so this is the first time viewing. I've you, read about it over the years, okay. so I'm aware, I was you, aware of you it. You and me are kind of on the same yeah, page, then. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, because it is a really important film that a lot of critics, especially, will talk about, and you'll have certain filmmakers who will reference it. Oh, yeah, this is one of my inspirations. So you're like, ah, this is a movie that keeps coming up a lot, so maybe I should check it out one day. And then, um, so I'm really glad we got to watch it on, on the show. And I think it is really great. I think it's... I really like the surrealist element to it, so mm-hmm. because unlike a lot of you know bottle episodes or stories that people have seen or other films, single location films that people have seen, this film ha- doesn't really worry about that. How or why are we stuck in here? It's just like, oh hey, these people—they're all just stuck in this room, and the movie has not doesn't really have any interest in exploring how or why they're stuck in the room. It's trying to see what would people of an upper class do if they were all stuck in a room together well, it, and just couldn't leave. And it's kind of a. Um, it almost is a, a bit of magical realism, which is borrows, you know, owes a lot to surrealism. Um, well, but, magical realism, what it is, is that they don't need the juxtaposition of the umbrella and the typewriter in the same way that the surrealists did. And so they already realized that uh, society itself is fundamentally broken in a way and that there is this sort of impinging realities. Yeah, right? Magical realism, by the way, like uh, Michelle Gondry, um, a lot of Spike Jones stuff. Uh, Being John Malkovich is a really good contemporary Terry example. Gilliam is a good example yeah. as well. There, There is clearly something supernatural happening, but the nuts and bolts of it are completely unimportant. Yeah, We're, we're going to treat this like it's the real world. But also, you can go into a closet and live inside John Malkovich's head for fifteen right. minutes, or be a musical where people just sing and they communicate that way for no reason, and no one ever explains why. You know, yeah, like exactly. it's, it's it's a film that doesn't worry about the hows or the whys. It's just hey, here's here's what's going on. 
and it's it's more interested in looking at those character dynamics. Even though I don't think it's really interested in the characters at all, it's interested in the character dynamics specifically. Right. So how are these yeah. people interacting? What are they doing once their world is kind of slowly crumbling around them? Uh, and that's I, a I, really interesting distinction that I, I'm glad you made. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big difference because, like as you said, these are all caricatures. I don't really actually care about any of them, but I, I man, I'm really interested in seeing what they're going to do to each other or how this is going to go down. And I'm also curious to, uh, as to what the people of the outside think of what's going on in this house because people knew know they're in the house. They just don't know what's going on. So I think uh, a really great premise. Um, I will say, and, and I, I'm really glad you brought up the bottle episode, and mm-hmm. I, I think this has just become kind of routine even for Hollywood films is I did feel like I'd seen it before. I hadn't seen it before. Hadn't seen it done this well. This is the first movie to, to do the, hey, a bunch of people trapped in this location. But I'm watching it. I'm like, you know, I haven't seen this story told this way yeah. or with a surrealist angle but man I've seen it before um, you know so it's, it's like one of those movies this is the first one it's the most important yeah, I don't I know definitely can't think of an earlier example of this kind of I mean it's been happening Lifeboat from Hitchcock's an example it, it, but, it but I think happened. yeah I mean there's there's uh, and what's the other is that the name of that movie Lifeboat from mm-hmm. Hitchcock well I guess is Rope prior to this or is it after? Oh, I don't know what the year is on rope. Um, producer Arthur Gordon, can you find that information for well, us? Well, while our producer's looking that up for us, I mean, yes, there are other movies around the late 50s, uh, early 60s that are about characters stuck in one location. Arthur, thank you so much. Rope was 1948, so it's yeah, way, way before this. Then. But, this but is, it's, it's, it's different than one lo- a one location thing. It is literally, yes. they cannot leave. Yes. Not that, that they're, they're not leaving they're, they're for narrative. They're trapped together there's, in this yeah. place against their will, and they don't know why. And they don't know why. And Lifeboat, it, it, rope, there's narrative reasons why people aren't leaving. With this, it's just the narrative is that they're not leaving. Is that they're not leaving. Exactly. And I, so and I think this one has had probably the, the biggest impact um well, you know, I don't know. I don't want to talk, take away from Hitchcock because obviously he's kind of, you know, master storyteller. But I do think that we've seen a lot of TV episodes or other movies where they're just like, yep, people in a room, we are not, we don't really care about the characters, but let's see what they do when you turn them against each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had entire horror franchises based off of that premise. Mm-hmm. So I like it for that reason because I think it's really important. So, if you know, if it's it's one of those films where if, if you are someone who likes single location films, like you absolutely must see it. But I will say it feels familiar with a surrealist spin to it, which I, which I appreciate. Dustin, you're you're the expert on Boonwell here. Um, I, I mean, com- comparatively, like I said, you speak third best uh, Italian. <laughs> comparatively, you know the most about this. You've seen this movie before. What? T- talk us through your thoughts on it, man. Well, I mean, I like it a lot. I mean, that's the most boring thing I could do right now. Just say I like this movie a it's lot. It's really good, though. Yeah, it, it, it is really good. I like Boonwell. I like his Mexican period. Um, I have a set of posters. Uh, the UCO uh, did a uh, film retrospective at the uh, Oklahoma City Museum of Art and uh, the, the awful, terrible, wonderful films of Louis Boonwell in Mexico. And <laughs> so uh, I, I just like that set of adjectives. And so I've got a couple of those posters um, in a box somewhere at my house that I haven't framed yet to hang up. But uh, th- this is a movie that's great. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's um, it, it, it's really good entry level, I think, Boonwell. In some ways, I think the Mexican period and this film in particular, because it is, as you say, more of a magical realism. Mm-hmm. It, it it's n- less just saying I am going to assault you in every way and um, you know upset all of your expectations for film watching. It does have a beginning, a middle, and an it's end. It's pretty subtle the way they they work those techniques in there too. And it, it does something more of that sort of uh, you might you might call the the surrealist practice of. Uh, you know, again, just sort of the random thing next. You know, the uh, the 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 exquisite corpse 
uh, sort of poetry in which you just randomly associate things together uh, one to another. And so randomly as a woman's opening her purse, there's, you know, chicken legs inside of her purse. And we don't know why. Why is there a bear in this house? You know, those kinds of, you know, sort of very, very random moments uh, that occur through the film. That there, there are these snippets of dialogue that you don't know what's going on and what you understand. But most of the film is not that. It is they're in a dinner party and it descends into something like Lord of the Flies in which uh, they're just, you know, all that sort of uh, pretense and all that sort of, uh, you know, putting uh, your best self forward just begins to slowly crumble in a desperate situation. And that's what he's dealing with as a film. And so I find that to be very brilliant. And also, again, quite entry level, I think, uh, for dealing with Boonwell, as opposed to seeing Unchin Endelu uh, right off the get. You want to see Boonwell, check out Unchin Endelu, and you're like, I don't. It, it can be very, very off putting. And you might suggest to yourself, I'm done with this stuff. I don't want to see any these sort of things any longer. The same thing could be said with Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, where it is um, much, he is much more in command of his skills and his abilities, but it is still um, very, very challenging cinema. Um, this film is brilliant, but it's also in, in, in many ways accessible, and so I like that about it a lot. And again, uh, if I'm going to recommend people to get into Boonwell, I'm like, hey, check out L, check out Nazarene, check out uh, Los Olvidados, check out this film. Because this is a way in to see sort of what we're doing and what we're dealing with. And then we can go backwards and look at Lodge Door or something like that from his more arty avant-garde period. Uh, as opposed to his uh, full powers as an art house uh, world cinema director um, towards the end of France, ending in 1977. And so, I like it a lot. It is it is really good. But I guess, I guess what I want to say in terms of my review is just sort of frame it within the conversation as I've sort of been doing already uh, with all that. So, that's where I am with that film. So, without any further ado, guys, I think it might just be time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> this week's game are three movie characters you do not want to be stuck with at a dinner party. Now that's right, three film characters you do not want to be stuck with at a dinner party, brought to you by The Exterminating Angel. The Exterminating Angel. The characters of this film are not valid for entry into this competition. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. You're welcome. <laughs> Mr. Caleb Masters, who do you not want to be stuck with at a dinner party? I, I, I'm just speechless. I, I was going to say you guys, but then I remember I love you guys so much. Oh. Also so, not film characters. So, uh, I am real. Are you? Are you? Are we fictional? Um, so, are any of us real? These are the real questions that trouble me at night. <laughs> Keep you awake all night long. Um, are you just guy? Are you guys just creations of my brain? And um, can I be sure that anything is real? So while Dalton fulfills his fantasies of going into the Matrix, um, I'm going to take a look at John Turturro from Transformers movies. Oh god, he's so obnoxious. Oh, Most man, of the characters I pick, the, the, the characters I picked are all like really obnoxious characters. I just don't. I, I I'm pretty tolerant, guys. I, I can sit and talk to people I don't like very much, or I can, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's fine. People who are just like obnoxious and make you want to like punch them in the face, like. Right there. So John Turturro from Transformers. Any of them? One. Um, I'll do it. I'll do a double. So say one character brings her companion with her, her, her child companion. I'm gonna say Willie and Short Round from Temple of Doom. <laughs> Those characters drive me insane. <laughs> Not to mention Short Round is incredibly uh, racist stereotype, but a little bit. Uh, but I mean, outside no time of that, for love, Doctor Caleb. 
Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones. No, nope. no, nope. we're, we're not doing it. Shut we're up. Doing, we're not doing the voice. Do you, do you want to hear that kid talk all to you all day at dinner time? There's a reason I never rewatched Temple of Doom. Oh, my God. And lastly, this just tells you where my head's been at for the for the last, well, you know, a couple a month or so. Uh, I, I definitely don't ever want to see Biff Tannen at uh, dinner. <laughs> oh, ever, no. Ever. I'll punch that's him square really in the face good, That's a really good pick. Uh, so yeah, just because he's a he's a bully and a bad person. Now, which do we do? We, do old future Biff, fifties um, Biff, or um, terrible parallel reality Biff? Uh, parallel, okay, most definitely parallel reality Biff. Nineteen mm-hmm. fifties Biff is a snot too. Yeah. So I, I'll lump those together. But old man Biff who cleans the cars, who's been humbled in life. I, I, oh I, no, I mean creepy old man Biff from like the future. Twenty twenty. Twenty. Yeah, twenty fifteen Biff. Yeah. Oh, okay. And alter, so still alternate. Yeah, no, no, I don't like that Biff either. Okay. Uh, yeah, no. The only Biff that's kind of o- remotely okay is original nineteen eighties Biff, although. He's still probably kind of creepy. Well, fixed Biff, right? You know, the original, when we see Biff the very first time. Oh, God, he's still awful. He's still yeah. terrible. He's, he's still yeah. not a nice guy, but he's like cleaning cars and, you know. Well, no, that's after, yeah, that's, that's after, after Marty gets it. back from Back to the Future. Oh, you're right. Snap. Yeah. Okay, so yes, after the, it fixed yeah. it the first time. Yeah. yeah. Before uh, it goes back to the future. This time travel shit's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> fry your egg like a Hey, uh, we're going to spend brain. all day what? making diagrams with straws. we got to move on. <laughs> all right, um, thanks, Bruce Willis. <laughs> Mr. Dalton Stewart, who are your picks? Um, literally a single character from Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Not a one of them. Oh, no, good, I'm kidding. That's not my break. real pick. Okay. It's a good pick, though. Xenomorph, Freddy Krueger, Leatherface. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> not my real picks. No, Although you, know, you, you, you should have included Hannibal and Leatherface. At the no, same actually, Hannibal Lecter is one of my picks. Oh, it's um, one of mine as well. Because he's kind of a twat. Um... Oh, yeah. Not just that he's going to probably serve me another person at another point. He's just kind of unbearable to be around. Like, he's so fucking up his own butt. Um, and, like, you're going to have to walk on eggshells all night to try and not piss him off or, like, do anything that he's going to find discourteous. Or he's going to slice you open. So so here's the question, though. Are we talking Anthony Hopkins? Uh, are yeah, we, ta- are w- we talking... Mads uh, Mikkelsen, Brian Cox. Uh, yeah, I could have gone... I'm thinking Mads specifically because Mads Mikkelsen is like the most hypnotic. I think Hopkins Lecter is actually kind of fun to hang around. Like, he's he's kind of... He's a little bit jokier. Uh, yeah, Mikkelsen, I would actually be legitimately uneasy sitting at a table. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's like... He's got a whole different energy. Um, but really, any of them are a no-go for me at all um next up on the list uh i actually have two different fargo or not fargo uh cohen brothers characters the first of uh being peter stormare's character from uh fargo grisman um who just won't talk you can't engage the motherfucker in conversation to save your life he just will not give you anything and he might put you in wood chipper but also he's impossible to have a conversation with i watch those scenes in fargo with him and bashimi and i've feel Bashimi so much in every one of those scenes where you're just like, give me something, guy. Like, come talk to me. It, it hurts. It pains me. Um, I've also been Peter Stormare's character uh, in that movie where I'm just like, we're driving. Please stop talking. Like, just let us drive in silence. So I can relate to both sides of that. But I definitely don't want that great I, what is is he playing a Russian in that movie? I, 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 I who can tell? I don't even know what Peter Stormare is. Is he Dutch? No one knows. Ambiguous. He's, he's from somewhere in Europe. He's white people. He's from somewhere in Europe. Um, so yeah, that's a no-go for me. And finally, I, I went back and forth on this one. Um, I've picked a character from The Big Lebowski. It's not any of the German nihilists. Uh, no repeat appearances by Peter Stormare. Um, but I, I, I'm going to go with Walter, um, which is obviously the, the character played very, very memorably by the incomparable John Goodman in, in that film. I thought about the dude himself because, let's be honest, nobody really wants to hang out with the dude for like an indeterminate amount of time. 
that's a guy that like you go over to like hang out for a little bit, but with a time period. Like you don't want to be stuck with the dude all night. But honestly, you could do a lot worse than the dude. Walter's kind of crazy um, and might, you know, pull a gun at the dinner table, um, is going to talk about Vietnam a lot, and that's just going to bring everybody down. Don't, don't bring up the Vietnam stories, no. man. And also, that's really the worst three people you could have stuck together also. It's really the combination of the three that really clinch it because Lecter can't shut up. Walter is going to have something to say about everything Lecter says. And then you've got uh, Peter Stormare in the corner just like fuming. And then when uh, his indeterminate Europeanness comes up, that's just going to send Walter in a whole fucking thing. It's it's bad news. Um, alternatively, great dinner party. Um, Donnie, the dude, and uh, Jesus. I could hang with that. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Um, that could be fun. Excellent. I like those picks very much, uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart. As already mentioned, Hannibal Lecter did make my list, and um, I was thinking more of the Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. uh, than Mads, but either or is, yeah. is fine, I think, with that. Brian Cox gets left out because none of us have seen Manhunter. We all, for, we all, we all forget that I, that one exists. And he's, he's, he's not really memorable. I really need to see Manhunter because I like Tom Newton a lot. It, well, I'll tell you what, um, Michael Mann's got an eye, um, and I will, you know... He, uh, Michael Mann, uh, I think it was Nick Sanford, uh, our friend of the show, Nick Sanford, who once said that every Michael Mann movie is almost great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a fact. Almost. Yeah. He yeah. makes great use of glass bricks. I will say that. Yeah, he film. does. He makes great use of glass bricks in a lot of his movies. Yeah, well, that's fair, too. So, uh, yeah, there, so I don't, there you go with uh, that. Also, um, I'm going to um, name Dumbledore, um, the actor Michael Gambon, mm-hmm. uh, his character from The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, mm-hmm. um, which is another film that is laced with cannibalism. He's a gangster. He will mm-hmm. not shut up, and he's full of bravado. He plays a gangster a lot. He does, and he is very, very obnoxious, and it is a film all about him being really, really sort of boorish at dinner. But is Helen Mirren coming with him? Uh, well, that that would make it worth it. No, then it would yeah, be a, that would be a big fat yes, because she is foin. Also, in, in that movie, well, but in general, but especially in that movie. In that movie, she also bangs strangers, so you know there's a, advantages to be had there I as well. Wasn't going to bring it up, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> I know she won, Dustin. <laughs> Give me some Helen Mirren. Have you yeah. seen the poster of that movie, listener? Uh, she is foin yeah, in that she, movie. She's looking good. Um, lastly, uh, let's get us another gangster. Let's get something disgusting and gross. Let's get yep. somebody who um, has very, very poor table manners, who definitely takes advantage of his guests. That's right, Jabba the Hutt. I, for some reason, was oh, thinking oh, uh, Ben oh, Kingsley oh. and Sexy Beast. I, just, <laughs> that's what I, I was like, is that who you're talking about? Because he's an asshole in that movie. <laughs> so, so is he going to be smoking, doing the whole nine yards while he's at the dinner table? Eating frogs, you know, yeah. slave girl. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. Now, does he come with the Rancor included, though? Mm. Uh, uh, perhaps. Mm-bah. Well, if you get the expanded uh, uh, playset, you also get Job of the Hut with the Rancor. Oh, so, <laughs> so if you get in real kung fu grip, solo, dingo, boom da ba ah It's just really fun to say. I'm going to be honest. And you you don't have the headset on right now, listener, that I have on, and in my head it sounds wonderful. Oh, 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 it's just fun to do. Dustin, give me one. Give me one. Yeah, you want to? Oh, oh, oh. Want to hear it again? Buddha. Oh, oh. Moving right along. Oh, you fucker. You tricked me. <laughs> you knew I would do it again. You <laughs> fooled me with your, your ways. All right, dear listener, there you go. Now you know our picks. We'd like to hear he, your picks. We'd like to hear what you have to say about what we've said so far trickster. about the exterminating angel. He's and an what incubus. we're going to say in the future about said exterminating 
Angel, and you can do that via those magical means that we all know as social media. Mr. Caleb Masters, can you tell us the main ways in which the conversation happens? Well, of course, you can always comment below right there at Good Trash Media, or if you want to head on over to like us and comment on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Good Trash Media, or of course, you can always find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash GTM. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. There remains yet a medium. Tell us about it. Uh-huh. Do what? Tell us about the medium. What What? what one? The one that's left. Oh, do you mean Twitter? I guess so. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Honor Cast on Twitter. I haven't done that in a long time. You can find the Good Trash Honor Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, that is not just this show, the Good Trash Honor Cast, but it's also all of Good Trash Media. Um, you can find uh, Caleb's show, Back to the Movies, uh, Dustin Arthur's show, The Cast Who Knew Too Much, Dustin and Alex's show, The Film Syllabus, and my show, uh, The People's History Film. Uh, you can find all of that and more over at good underscore trash. That is the way to interact with us about anything that we do on this network. Uh, but also, there is a one very, very easy way to support us if uh, you're not really into talking with us but still enjoy what we do. You can go over to this show on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe. It means the world. We had a big uptick in reviews because we kept shouting at you to do it. Um, but like a steady influx would be nice. So... If you will go over to iTunes, uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the show, that would uh, be wonderful, and it's a super easy, uh, completely free way to help support uh, Good Trash Media. Yes, indeedy. Thank you very much for that, gentlemen. Guys, it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. That's right, dear listener, and that business in question is, as always, analysis. I am so stoked to hear what my co-hosts have to say. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What analysis do you bring today? So we were sitting around the table um, before we started recording, and uh, Dustin and I were just kind of bullshitting. and um, As we are wont to as do. As we are wont to do. And um, we, we simultaneously came up with uh, Sartre's uh, Hell is Other People, and that really helped... I was I was having a hard time putting a name to what I wanted to talk about with this film. I I, I couldn't quite like give a headline for it, and that that's it's hell as other people. Th- there is obviously a lot of political subtext happening in this film. There's a lot of social and economic subtext, and all that's going to be stuff that we're going to talk about as we move forward uh, in this conversation uh, into Caleb and Dustin's re- analysis. But I I really the whole time I was watching this, I I don't know about you guys, I have been at this dinner party. Um, in some respects, obviously I've never been magically uh, stuck in a room, but I've definitely been with people and could not wait to get the fuck out. Um, being around other people is the worst. It's terrible. It's awful. Unless you got to handpick every single person. And that's a, the, the sense you get very early in this film is that none of these people know each other very well. They're like kind of all know each other by reputation. All rich people that happen to be at the same opera. And they're like, Oh, Hey, you guys want to come to our house for dinner? It'll be fun because I guess restaurants aren't a thing in this town. Um, and, and that's not uncommon. I mean, it's, you know, it's based on the time setting. I mean, you know, it's late and they have servants. The servants will make them dinner literally any time. So let's go, let's go have dinner. And then you realize as you're sitting down, none of these people are people you want to be hanging out with. Like you, you went because you just got done at a thing that was fun. And yeah, let's, you know, let's keep the night going. And then nobody knows how to call the fucking evening off. I have been at this dinner party. I've been at this party 
it's terrible. Um, this is this was a party that could have used an Irish person because uh, <laughs> my people <laughs> spiced it up a little bit. No, my people just bone the fuck out and don't say anything. Uh, that's why they call it an Irish goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. You just leave when you're ready to go. You are a grown up and you are allowed to go home whenever you want to. And that is a really th- interesting thing about this film is the, the way that it, it puts a feeling um, or the way that it puts a name to the feeling of not being able to leave. And that's the, the great lie of etiquette, the great lie of social engagements. You can, in fact, leave whenever you want to, and anybody that tells you otherwise is a butthead. I don't know why I said it like that or chose the word butthead, but that's what I went with. And it, I just I find it very interesting, this, this inability that people socially... And again, I'm not just talking about in this film. I am talking about in your life, listener, in our lives, this... Uh, this feeling we have where we're at a place and we actively do not want to be there and yet we can't allow ourselves to leave um, be it with family be it with social acquaintances be it with friends much more rarely because uh, those are all people you've chosen to be with uh, but really like kind of like secondhand like tertiary social acquaintances you find yourself stuck in situations and you just don't let yourself remember that you're allowed to go home whenever you want to. And that's kind of how this dinner party starts before it's apparent that there's a magical reason of some sort that they cannot leave. They're all like, look at that. The dude's taking off his jacket. Like I know it's late, but why is he taking off his jacket? That's like so slutty. Why is he doing that? And that's one of my favorite moments in the movie. That's why I took my jacket off when I sat down today. That's such a specific like cultural thing. uh, The taking off of the tuxedo jacket that I have no frame of reference for. I really got a kick out of that though. Because it's it's this moment where the, the things start to turn, right? We don't even see the dinner that the guests have. Like, we are led to assume that dinner goes fine and that they've been hanging out. I mean, Dustin, help me out here because you've seen this more than I have. To me, it seemed like the timeline of, like, them sitting down to dinner, the waiter, like, tripping over uh, his own feet and spilling all the hors d'oeuvres. Um, I said that weird. Uh, spilling all the hors d'oeuvres uh, to them being in, like, the music room. It seems like several, several hours have passed, right? Yeah, I always say there's bit, there's a, there's a bit of a time because it seems there, like yeah. they got there probably like ten o'clock from the opera, uh, because Spani- or later, because yeah. Spaniards eat at weird times. Um, <laughs> don't laugh, you know that's true. That's just a cultural <laughs> fact. I'm just saying they're they're into late night dinners. I don't like it. It gives me gas. I'm not into it. <laughs> I'm come from soft northern European stock. We. We West Northwestern European stock. The Irish, we don't eat late. We eat at five o'clock and we go right the fuck to drinking and then we go to bed. We don't eat late. It, it's bad on the digestion. But anyway, they got that was a weird digression. They so they get they get to dinner the house like probably nine ten o'clock because um, all this the help is ready to go home for the night. They they did not want to be there in the first place. And we'll get more into that as we get into the economic and social readings of this film. But the help is plugged into. The, to things a little bit more closely because they realize that they can just go home. Like they don't have to put on appearances. It's a job. Their job is done. They're clocking out for the evening. They're already have been there for, because it's like 3 a.m. when people are start talking about like, maybe we should leave. So they've already been there for over four hours, like four or five hours. And they just, nobody wants to be there. None of these people like each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very clear. And yet, for the sake of appearance, they play along and they have fun. And that's how you know that rich people are actually miserable and uh, we're having more fun. Because I tell you what, nobody makes me go to a dinner party I don't want to go to. Fair enough. 
So uh, keep that in mind as you go about your life, listener. No one can keep you hostage. You can go home whenever you want to. Um, uh, take it from me, somebody who loves, um, I'm probably going to leave here, get a pizza on my way home, and not leave my apartment for the next 20 hours. It's great. You can shut yourself off from other people, and now we have cell phones, so you can still kind of be plugged into each other's lives, but uh, not forced to be around other people. Hell is other people. They will make you miserable. People are bastards. You don't have to be around them. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. More on um, keeping up decorum anon, but I go to you first, Mr. Caleb Masters. What analysis do you bring? Well, I'm, I'm glad Dalton talked about uh, kind of mentioning the fact that these are all wealthy people that happen to be trapped in the same place due to appearances. Because It's the, definitely important. It is. It is because when you're in the, 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 the upper middle class, upper class, you know, and you're, and you're working or you just have a lot of wealth, like you, you want to appear I mean, to have relationships and, with people. And let's right? be clear, this is not the upper middle class. These are not like small oh, these are No, these people are yeah. the, the 1% of the 1%. Yeah, these are not in, like uh, successful Texas, small business Spain. owners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no. These are people who are living that bourgeoisie life. So we're, we're again, ultra, ultra rich people, right? Oh, un- unbelievably rich. Yeah. yeah. Um, so these, these people are all trapped in the same place. Um, now, I think what's interesting about this, though, is that you, you're when you're looking at the history of like the Spanish economy, which is where the film's set. There, you know, especially in the '50s and the '60s, you're actually looking at an increase, uh, well, a larger wealth gap than what you'd seen in previous years. Um, so it it's definitely something that must have been on Boonwell's mind. But I think what the, the, this movie is doing, though, is critiquing the bourgeoisie. These are people who are out of touch with the average person. In fact, I mean, we see so they they basically say, "Oh, this, that train accident." Ah, I didn't feel bad about it. You know, like these are people who do not care about people, but they do care that they appear to be with cool people. Exactly. So they're all ultimately it's very, very, very selfish and, and, and narcissist, uh, kind of a narcissistic, narcissist way to live. Um, and ultimately, I think, uh, you know, Boomwell is, especially given the economy in Spain, is really upset about it. Uh, he's he's basically showing how silly rich people are, and he's like, "What if what if you took away the thing that makes them the most important? Like, say, you know what? Your money at this point doesn't matter. Uh, you got yourself into the situation uh, because of, of appearances, like you're saying, Dalton. Uh, I felt like I had to be around these people mm-hmm. in order to build re- re- reputations, to, bu- to to crack business deals, to meet people who are going to help me get what I want. Well, and there there, there is something interesting happening. Uh- people for some reason and Dustin feel free to chime in at any point with what I'm about to say but Caleb you're you're right about appearances and again it's important to to point out the economy during Spain in the 60s because uh, unlike most European nations um, in the early 60s Spain was fine they had no like post-war depression because they were effectively neutral during World War II despite the fact they were still a fascist empire like they were the only fascists to make it out of World War II, and it's something that nobody talks about because they didn't really get involved globally after they had that transition of fascist power in the uh, in the early 40s before World 38. War... 38, thank you. Uh, in the late 30s before World War II proper kicked off. They, yeah. they had their own huge civil war. They'd had 20-some-odd years to bounce back economically. They made a lot of money selling shit to the, uh, to the Germans during World War II. So I mean, yeah, rich people were very rich in Spain in the sixties. Well, that because that because they had never they again they weren't impacted by the economy of the war. Well, and again, uh, so. and again, I mean, they had their own very. Let's not take anything away from the Spanish Civil War, which was a oh, a geez. nightmare. Oh, awful. True. But but they had another five years that the rest of Europe didn't have, and also there was a lot of material support given to the Axis powers by them that made their country quite a bit of money. 
Uh, yeah, well, and actually, that that was something that I was just, you know reading across, just kind of looking at the economics of Spain at the time. Like the U.S. was actually after World War II, even sending the money all the way through like the Eisenhower administration. So these were this was definitely a, a nation that was being supported um, by other of the uh, again like the allies following World War II. Somehow they played the middleman, but the people who who benefited off of that the most, of course, following the Civil War, were going to be your upper class. And I think what you see in this film is Boonwell, who is who's very upset with the, with wealthy people and i and i do think this is something we've again might go back to my review this is something we've seen a lot of mm-hmm. since but i think if you're looking at the, the the point in time and of course the context of putting it in spain like these are people who had didn't have the same problems that everyone else in the world had after world war ii well and there there was a reference that i i didn't quite i had to look it up because i was kind of confused there there's two or three references to jewish people in this film and i was like well, that's kind of weird like that's very specific um, despite being fascist, uh, not anti-Semitic. So a lot of Jewish refugees from World War II ended up in Spain. Yes. So they had like a very large Jewish population. Uh, the irony of uh, the history of the Jews in Spain not being lost on us here because it was bad. Uh, but a lot of Jews ended up in Spain during the 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, I mean, one of the dinner guests is like a practices like a mystic Kabbalah stuff. There's a reference to... A, a fairly anti-Semitic reference to a, a glass being broken because it's, uh, maybe a Jew outside was passing by. But you, you're right about appearances. I mean, these are people who are all about status, right? Right. It's all about status. It's very surface level. There's, I mean, everything from the way they dress to the way that the, the the way that the house looks that they're in. Like these are the things that matter. Oh, you took your jacket off. Oh my God! What you're rebel, right? Right. <laughs> and and, and, I, and I'm, I'm with you though, Dalton. I've been in those situations. I've been at those parties where, like, you do something like that. Like, it's a political statement. Like, not political, political, but you know, like, it is. You're making a move that everyone's going to pay attention to. Be like, oh, why are you doing this in this formal party setting? And in appearances, um, for some reason, motherfucker, we've been here for five hours. Yeah. I've had boots on. Like, I'm taking them off. I'm t- if I'm going to be, if a, I'm stuck here, there's a moment in uh, this is an interjection sort of tangent, but there's a moment in the West Wing mm-hmm. uh, where Bartlett is giving a, uh, a sort of a, a Q and A town hall sort of speech, and uh, he uh, they had a, had a whole conversation about if he should take his coat off or not, and uh, <laughs> about halfway through the speech, he's like, "Forget it, guys. It's hot under these lights. Can I please just take my coat off?" And it means nothing, mm-hmm. you know. And it, then that's the well, sort of stuff we're talking. And it's about. Fun, yeah. it's funny when if it, uh, again just on that same thoughts like people freaking out because Obama rolled up his sleeves and. and debates and stuff like that right so it's but these are the, the appearances it's it's about how do i look to other people um and i think the movie what the movie does so well as it turns all of that on its head oh well these pots that you were so worried about looking so pretty in these clothes that you knit, well now these are things you need to survive now you have to now you have to take a crap in a pot that you were that once once it had they do in fact have pots to piss in a boom yes oh man Wow. Um, so yeah, these are these these things that are all vanity items. All of the vanity, the vanity, all these very surface level things are all turned into. Um, well, there's a great moment where the speaking of things that were vanity items, the host of the house is just like, oh, by the way, I happen to have this box full of codeine and morphine and laudanum, and right. the doctor's like, look. I know you're used to partying with the shit, but we've got people here who are in serious pain because we have older people who haven't eaten like a proper meal in over a month. So thank you. Like these, these right. accou- the accoutrement of their their comfort ends up saving them in some regard. Right. I mean, I guess that's just for, to put a pen in, like kind of what I'm getting with the, the analysis, though, that it is showing that the the vanity of the the wealthy um, 
is silly in comparison to the things that people actually need. Yeah, like medicine. Like like medicine, like places to take a dump, like, you know, like all this stuff, your clothes, you're there, you're there and you need them um, to keep you warm. You, you need animal, I, I get, they resort to eating the animals, which some people hey, might find Hey, Dustin, help, help me out here real quick. Since Caleb brought it up, what's with the sheep and the bear? Like, why do they have those in the house? Is that like a real thing, or is it, is he just being weird with us? No, no he is he, he is absolutely being weird with us. Yeah. But the sheep themselves, it's religious iconography. Yeah, honestly. no, I got that. And, and also Russia, Soviet Union, communism. So the, ba- the bear is it's communism? Russia. Russia. Okay, Russia. all right. Which is a very interesting so, thing. So they're just like watching it run around. They're like, oh, what's it, this it's stuff? around, but it's not really involved. And in apparently, the story. Boonwell had that happen at a dinner party. By the way, I guess he was like at a dinner party, and there were just like sheep in one room, um, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> um, but. Caleb, I mean, you're, you're reading, there, there's a very interesting thing, I don't know if you read this, um, I, I read the film as well as you did, uh, being a critique of the wealthy, of the bourgeoisie, this film was banned in Soviet and the Soviet Union uh, because the uh, the tastemakers of the USSR were not pleased with the idea of a film where you can't leave a party. Yeah, of course yeah. not. Of course, they, of course they uh, yeah. banned. There's, it. there's a party not. you can't leave. Right. They were like, no nope. metaphor. Yeah, yeah. They, they did not like it. You which come is, to the party, you are at the party. Which is interesting because you would think they would have dug this anti-capitalist movie, right? Yeah, they, they missed the point a lot. Uh, in no shit. Sixty Soviet. Union uh, they're Nazi still missing shit. the point. Suck my dick. Sorry, that was. Uh, uh, now we're gonna get hacked. Uh, that was a mistake. So, 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 Dustin, what do you have to say about the about the film? Actually, okay. Well, I want to sort of piggyback on a lot of the ideas that you guys are putting forward, and this idea of the film as critique of fascism—that it is, in some ways, trying to take on Generalissimo Francisco Franco, and uh, who took who, who came to power in 1938. As Shithead that he was. Um, he was terrible. I mean, he was the worst kind of person. Uh, he led a uh, a military coup against a democratically elected government that was. Fall- Far left compared to what was uh, going on at that time in Spain and moving away from a much more royalist sort of position to a much more, uh, again, socialist sort of uh, idea of governance and uh, led a minority of people towards revolt, um, crushing the rebellion, which were the loyalists, which were, you know, again, the Republicans, uh, <laughs> which is the term that they would use uh, uh, for this, uh, that they, they, because they were for the republic, you know, democracy. You know, words mean different things in different places. In Australia, the liberals um, are the more conservative party, which is interesting. Strange. Yeah, words are, words are funny. Yeah, and just different country politics being what it is. Uh, Franco stayed in power from 38 to 75. Yup. I'm just saying, uh, this is crazy town how long I, I don't, there. I don't know why we're not all uh, talking, uh, talking about, about it right? all the time. Oh, World War II is over. Fascism lost. Uh, democracy in the West won. No, motherfucker. It's, Spain. The war, it's the ignored war. The fascists were still in power, like, politically, even after Franco died until, what, the late 80s, early 90s? Something like that, yeah. I mean, it's insane. And so Spain's a very, very sort of special, strange, you know... Different kind of fascism, yeah. Unique kind of place. But as fascism always does, it creates great disparity between the wealthy and the working classes. And uh, what the film is doing is it's talking about revolution. It's talking about continuing revolution. It's talking about continued uh, sort of resistance against the Franco regime. And the only way that you can do that is by taking down the sense of decorum. Um, There's a famous 19 teens political cartoon about the uh, the pyramid of capitalism right we rule you we fool you we shoot you we eat for you and we work for you uh, the three you know the, the tiers of uh, that particular little pyramid and uh, the bourgeoisie are those who eat for us and they're the ones that actually keep up the the, the facade of 
uh, capitalism, of fascism, and of this idea that uh, this is the way things are, and it, we have to, again, sort of look respectable in some way. And if we continue to keep looking respectable, that's actually something like justice, as opposed to actual real-life justice, where there's real running water and potable water and good sewage, you know, well, which is being taken away from them, that's why they're all taking dumps and closets, like food, like medicine, like health care, um, it's the, the 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 thing that uh, cults and fascism both share is doublespeak, right? Is saying something means something else for so long that it starts to mean something else. The National Socialist Party said socialism enough that socialism helped that helped to make socialism a dirty word. Uh, Not socialism. No, the economy of Nazi Germany was a fucking like unfettered capitalist wet dream because they were the. Sorry, Volkswagen, I enjoy the car that you sold me, uh, but Volkswagen and Mercedes and all of these other like manufacturers in Germany were allowed to do whatever they wanted, which is why their economy bounced back so quickly, but also why there was a lot of poor people in Nazi Germany. Well, what ends up being socialized in Nazi Germany is, say, media. Exactly. That's, that's, it, yes, there are aspects of this culture that are socialized. It's just that everybody's getting kickbacks. That's yeah. not, that's yeah, not really what the Lenin meant, I don't think. No, not at all. And nor, nor Marx. And, and so the idea then is that these people need to be taken down and, and to realize that this is how desperate the straits are. And it creates a film in which uh, the bourgeoisie are placed in desperate straits. Uh, the ones who are not doing the work, those who are not, you know, again, providing for the culture, they're not part of the elite classes that do the shooting or the fooling or the ruling, and we'll talk about them momentarily. Well, and let's not forget that the um, the, the help, uh, for lack of a want of a better phrase, they can't wait to leave. Yeah. I mean, that's something early in the film, they all have their reasons for getting the fuck out as soon as they can, except for um, the, the, ma- the Major character. Dom, uh, the head butler, can't leave either. Well, because which is, he has sold the fuck out. Well, and that is, I think that's the important, crucial thing, is that uh, one thing John Steinbeck once said about American uh, socialism, the reason why it will never, ever take hold is because everyone in America considers themselves temporarily inconvenienced millionaires. Yep. Right. And, uh, that, that, Steinbeck that, was a smart guy. He was, he was, he's wise. And so we we're all watching out for the day that we're going to someday be rich, and there that's why we keep this sort of protectionist uh, policies in place. And so what Boonwell then begins to do as that sort of socialist heart of surrealism is to say, listen, if you place these people in these straits, if these people can see what it would be like to be in those kind of straits, they would have a different understanding and they would prioritize things that mattered much more than the taking off of jackets or the the availability of harpsichords or any of those other little bits uh, that we find throughout the film, that actual food, water, um, again, sewage and medicine, those are the important priorities. The film ends by taking up a class nearly to the top, right? Below those who rule us are those who fool us, which is the religious class according to the structure of capitalism. Dude, and, that, this, okay, the scene in that church is the funniest. Because, unlike a dinner party where people, there is a good reason for people to want to hang out at a dinner party. Sometimes you have a good time. You have a good meal and you have people that you enjoy being around church is the one place everybody bones out pretty quick sometimes you have a good time at church but again the priests are shocked that everybody's still there yeah they're like very surprised because people mill about outside of a church frequently you know you do your your pieces be with you the priests are stunned that people have not left yet, which is hilarious to me. And I think the implication is this, and this I think is overwhelmingly um, true of clergy um, 
you know, in this sort of sense that Boonwell is trying to critique it, is that they don't actually care about the well-being of these people, and that's what's going to be revealed yeah. um, throughout the course of the next ordeal as they're all stuck in the church This house. particular power structure in Spain is much more interested in the power structure of their organization, less the spiritual and emotional well-being of their parishioners. To take the words of Breton and Etihad, uh, to say this, um, there is a moment in which uh, there have to be spiritual weapons waged uh, in warfare in which those people uh, realize that the real spiritual warfare is the spirit of justice, is to take down, again, the principalities and powers of the air, the institutions of a culture that are We were having a very fun time listening to Run the Jewels 3 before we started recording, and there is a reference uh, or a a hook drop from, I believe it's a scripture, um, you were not waging against flesh and blood. This is against principalities and evildoers and unclean spirits. Sometimes the the weapons that are being fought with are ideas. It is right. whether or not people who care about other people and people who care about themselves. And those do create an absolute sense of spirit, um, that there's a spirit when you get a group of people together. There might be a spirit in a party, um, if you're talking politically. There's a spirit in a corporation. Those sort of things are communal sort of ideas. And that what Boonwell is doing, uh, again, following Etiard, following uh, Breton, is he's using spiritual weapons to say this, that we need to take this stuff down and to take down, again, the, uh, the, the, the sense of decorum, the sense of propriety that everyone has, and then instead of doing that see the real needs that are going on put one's uh needs aside and or rather one's wants one's comforts aside and look at the needs of a whole society and by so doing we can revolutionize that society which is the intention i think of this film uh overwhelmingly and so that's the reading that i would offer that was a wonderfully fun conversation i like it when the three of us get cross talking like that that was good stuff it was a good time, dear listener, and we'd love for you to chime in. We've already heard about those social media memes by which that conversation can continue, so we encourage you to do just that in the future. Before we get to the end of our show, we must do uh, the thing that we always do, which is render a verdict. Show for trash, else, or instead. I am so stoked to hear what my co-hosts have to say. Caleb Masters, show for trash, else, or instead. I mean, my parameters for shelf is do I buy it not maybe watch it again but definitely to lend out to people and it definitely fits those parameters because i think it's really important i again though it's a it's a story we've seen told so many other times that it, i i don't feel like i i need to go back and rewatch this although i do think it's really really good it's kind of like the uh, citizen kane effect it's it's it, it it definitely broke new ground but it's been so well broken since it's yeah. kind of hard to watch yeah yeah, yeah. I, I like citizen kane but uh, but I digress. Yes, yeah, it's a movie that's that's widely regarded as very very important. Um, that you're not just going to pick up and rewatch. But, but you've but seen you, all the reasons. You've seen it's all important. The, and, and exactly. And I think if you're going to study film and you're going to look at this like kind of weird subgenre of being locked in one place, you absolutely have to see Exterminating Angel. Therefore, absolutely shelf it. So and uh, to go along with that though, I have to throw out uh, Snowpiercer from a couple of years ago because that that that, that that's taking these ideas and putting it in a different scenario and taking it like three steps further. Uh, I know that babies taste the sweetest. Oh my God. Um, I also want to give a shout out to, uh, from last year, The Invitation, which is a film I believe is still streaming on Netflix. My man, that's one of my else's. Yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. People get different reasons, but they're all trapped in a house and they don't really want to be there together. So guess yeah, what? It's good stuff. And crazy stuff ensues. Yeah, I thought about the invitation while I was watching this. I did too. I thought about that and some really. So this is like stuff. a very soft shell for you, right? Yeah, yeah, it's soft. Like I like it a lot, and I might rewatch it at some okay. point. But more, more for more, less for me. More for hey, 
other friends who I think mm-hmm. like these types of movies, I'm going to lend this to you. So yeah, yeah, it goes on my shelf. Uh, I'm also going to shelf it, Caleb. Um, I don't think it's for everybody, but if if you are if you consider yourself a cinephile, if you consider yourself a film buff, this is one you need to check out. Um, if you just like listening to us talk about movies, then it's okay. You can you can skip this one. You're you're not gonna like deprive yourself of, of any like inherent joy it's it, it, at the end of the day it's all moving pictures right but i think it is very good i i, I think it's excellent um I, I i don't think i would go as far as to call it a masterpiece but i would definitely call it very important and i definitely think it's very interesting and it's a lot of, it's fun i had a good time watching it um so it's a soft shell for me as well um i would again 2016 is the invitation which is a great i i re- am realizing I have a, a wheelhouse that is like high concept dinner party movies uh, because not only do I want to recommend The Invitation, I also want to recommend from a film from 2013, 2014, I think is when it might have had its theatrical release called Coherence, um, which is all about, um, it's kind of a sci-fi realism party, um, multiple realities uh, converging upon each other, dinner party, it's it's awesome. It's a great movie, it's weird, it's, it's very interesting, strongly recommended, and it features an actor by the name of Nicholas Brendan, who is best known for his role as Xander on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one of the best bottle episodes of old, all time, older and far away from season six of, six of Buffy. Uh, it is an episode that directly references this film. I mean, it is making no bones about uh, Joss Whedon has said, yeah, well, no, Exterminating Angels is great. Like, this, this episode is, like, referencing that film. Obviously, there's a magic talisman or a demon's curse or whatever keeping them inside the house, uh, not just the magic of the magic terrors of capitalism and the bourgeoisie. But it's it's a great, great bottle episode of a great television series um, that uh, is heavily referencing this film. And again, um, you, you got a little twofer there for you. You got uh, double the dose of Nicholas Brendan, who's a great actor who should have had a better career. And um, yeah, he's there in that episode of Buffy. He's there in the fantastic film coherence. And then again, as with Caleb said, the invitation is great. I th- it's like my top thirty for um, twenty sixteen films. I think it's a fantastic thriller. It's streaming, so why are you not yeah. watching it? Right? Yeah, it's 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 on Netflix right now. Go watch it. It's great. Okay, so I'm going to make your uh, syllabus much longer. I am also going to say shelf, mm-hmm. um, and I want to recommend two Boonwell films and then two other films. Okay. Uh, check out Land Without Bread, which is his documentary about what's going on with the Spanish Civil War, and uh, I think it's very closely connected. And if you want to catch those earlier Boonwell films of his classic avant-garde period, Lodge Door, Unchain and Aloof, fine. Um, I think that's definitely stuff I'd recommend. But I would also say the better companion piece in far as uh, Boonwell's work is, as we've already mentioned, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Um, which is a lot, is like, an active like comic farce, right? Like, yes, it is. I, I, that's the one thing I'm aware of. It is like it's an act, actively a comedy. It's right? pretty hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a lot of fun. It's the same it's not like a dry. dry it's not like a dry. Oh, it is. Okay. It's pretty dry. Okay, but it's pretty funny. I mean, it's ridiculous. I guess at times. So I mean, not quite Python esque, but um, barking at a that little door. bit more actively funny than this film, though. Correct. Correct. Uh, then um, I think you just need to think about the Civil War uh, in Spain, and uh, the best way I know to do that it was not with a documentary or uh, even necessarily. Uh, biographical historical picks, but rather fantasy films. So check out Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone and the companion piece Pan's Labyrinth. I think this is great stuff, and it's a good place to sort of place your brain uh, for dealing with what happens uh, here in this particular film. And it reminds you that fascists are always the villains, always and forever. They are never good. They never have your best interests at heart. Correct. Moving on. Not that there's any reason we would be bringing that up right now. 
I'm just saying. Or, you know, maybe. Who knows? I Double speak. You, you don't know what I'm saying. So you're saying if a fascist promises you everything, they're probably lying. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, and if there's a heavily organized group that is pledging allegiance to that demagogue, you should fight them at every opportunity, even if it's outside of a bar on the plaza in Oklahoma City. I'll be there, you alt-right hack fucks. Okay. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, I don't know what Dalton's talking about. I don't about. know what he's talking Sorry, about. Sorry. Got a little feisty there. I'm, uh, I'm better. Hey, I'm guess fine. what? We're going to keep doing this show. We're going to keep moving right on through. Can't stop, won't stop. That's right. And uh, we can't stop not stopping. And uh, that means... <laughs> <laughs> never stop, never stopping. <laughs> uh, that means we actually have to announce a host pick from a host who is not here. Yeah, Alex... Uh, who is, she's been gone our last two episodes. Um, she's very busy right now. She's helping make a motion picture. Good for her. But uh, she has the host pick for um, for our month of anti-trash. She does. She does. And we want to be very, very intentional about getting outside of North America, getting outside of male voices, um, getting outside of straight voices, and all of those kind of things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get into North America, but also out. We're going to get outside of the male gender uh, into a female director. And we're going to look at an Iranian film that was made in the United States. Uh, we're going to be looking at a girl walks a home alone at night. I, I think I said a home. Yeah, but you no. know. I, I've been needing an excuse to watch this movie. A girl walks home alone at night. It's going to be great. It's a vampire movie. It's got Iranians. It's got vampires and Iranians. I'm happy. So, I mean, what more In do Los need? Angeles. In Los Angeles, sort of. Yeah. Let's well, stop. I'm, I'm sorry. Let's it, stop calling this an Iranian film. It's an American film. That is in in far- quasi set in Iran, but yeah, yeah, but it's a uh, American Iranian filmmaker. Um, I'm excited to watch this. I've been wanting to watch it for a while. I've been looking forward to that. Actually. It's a good movie. Yeah. So finally, an excuse. I'm excited. To take a look at that. Take a look at that. Take a look at the Exterminating Angel. Take a look at any film and have a conversation over the beverage of your choice because that's what makes watching the films so worthwhile. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. The Good Trash Genre Cast is produced and edited by Arthur Gordon. Direction by Dustin Sells. Social media by Alexandro Bohannon, Caleb Masters, and Dalton Stewart. Our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genre Cast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com.